My next one-day online Blazor workshop will be Monday, February 24th. Did you like .NET Conf, but you find yourself wanting some personal guidance as you write that killer Blazor app? Well, let me personally walk you through building a real-world PWA app in Blazor, complete with EF Core, API controllers, generic reusable components, SignalR for real-time collaboration, ASP.NET Core identity for authentication and authorization, JavaScript interop, and user management, all using Visual Studio 2019 and .NET Core 3.1. And if you can't make it February 24th, you can download the screen video from a previous workshop and the materials, which will guide you step-by-step -step with screen captures and code that you can just cut and paste. What are you waiting for? Go to blazer.appphoenix.com to register for the workshop or just the materials. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And man, this is going to be a fun show. Um, we're using Zencaster for the first time in a long time. Mm -hmm. We tried it once and... Experimented in the early days of their product and had some challenges. Yeah, that's a nice way of putting it. I am a nice man. Have you met me? I'm very charming. <laughs> but you've been using it on Run As Radio and you say it's working great, so... We're, uh, well, and, and part of that is just the, the basic truth of uh, every product improves. And when you have multiple people, multiple locations, it gets hard. Yeah. And you know what else gets hard as we get older, Richard? Mm -hmm. Vision. And I'm not oh. talking about the kind of vision where you can see the future and you have good ideas. I'm talking about your eyes. Oh, no. I Dude, you know, here I am. <laughs> hey, yeah, my you're... In my the third or fourth generation of progressives, I'm getting old. You remember the day um, we were? <laughs> you had like a laptop on and with a high resolution screen, and you were yeah. trying to read data in a uh, VM. And uh, it, was, it was an RD, I was an RDP session, and it, <laughs> and it was set at like 4K and coming across my little screen. I just and I couldn't you get like it to squinted zoom. It took off your glasses. You're <laughs> leaning up to the. Yeah, like, like oh nose God. right on the screen. You were having a fine time that day, weren't you, Mr. Franklin? Yes, <laughs> yeah, you were. Funny. That was funny. <laughs> but um, so this better know a framework might provide some relief. So roll the crazy music. Awesome. All right, dude. How are you going to help my eyesight? Well, this is an article in Fast Company from January 16th, the making of Mojo, AR, that's augmented reality, contact lenses that give your eyes superpowers. Great. Okay. So, we haven't got augmented reality working well in an external device. So, let's stick one in our eyes. Absolutely. Because Google <laughs> Glass was too conspicuous. You just yeah. want it on your eyes. Yes. You want, and then people are going to look in your eyes and say, why are your eyes green, have blue, green blinky lights in them? <laughs> That's not going to be weird <laughs> at all. But it is definitely, you know, from what they show, it does look like that RoboCop sort of overlay on what you're seeing, you know? Yeah. It's, it's uh, something. It, it's the future. It's no, something. So, well, there's a company that's doing it. And, that's uh, cool. Yeah. We're trying anyway. Yeah, they're trying. Willing to, they're willing to spend your money on it. Well, you know, the step one is that an article comes out in Fast Company. So. Right. It's progress. <laughs> between, <laughs> between now and uh, an actual product, is it could be a long, long time. 
But anyway, it's an interesting article. Go check it out. And uh, yeah, who's talking to us today, Richard? I uh, grabbed a comment off of show 1663, the one we did back in November of 2019 uh, with one Kendra Havens. Maybe you heard of her. Oh, yeah. And we, we were talking about Studio 2019 and productivity. And I know we're going to talk a little in that space today. I thought this was a particularly relevant. Uh, actually, this comment hit me pretty pretty firmly. This is from uh, PW Jam, who says, uh, this was very nice. And it helped me to better understand and make use of the feedback within Visual Studio. I do think that you really show what a bubble of privilege you are in sometimes with your comped MSDN subscriptions, particularly when you get into demonstrating your lack of awareness of how Microsoft licenses its developer tools and technologies. It is a disservice to portray the Visual Studio Community Edition as just being for hobbyists and students. It is perfectly oh, legitimate yeah. to use for commercial software development for any team up to about five concurrent users. I totally agree. I love Community Edition. There isn't really anything I've found that I can't do. Then again, I'm a guy, uh, I'm a shop of one. Yeah. And and, you, and he's totally right. And it's not, I'm not going to say that we don't live in a bubble of privilege because you are correct, sir. Yeah. But I also think our other issue is we're old. And the original <laughs> community, <laughs> that's it. The original version of, the original Community Edition of Visual Studio was quite crippled. Yep. Right. I mean, that back in the day. And so I think our reflexes are wrong because it is not crippled anymore. Oh, no, it's ridiculously right. great. It's a it's a great version of studio and it, and it will run all it was it used to you couldn't run add ins and things into it. Like a lot of important stuff didn't work in the old community edition. Right. But that was fixed years ago. And we do it a disservice to not treat it as a full fledged version of studio because it is it's a great product. And at PW, keep keep telling us when we're being silly because I think you're right. And uh, that was an error on our part, and we will do better. Yep, absolutely. And a copy of Music to Code By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code By, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on Facebook. We publish every show there. And if you comment there and I read it on the show, I'll send you a copy of Music to Code By. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. He sent us a tweet, but uh, large fonts, please. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's bring on Danny and Gustavo. Dan Simmons is a principal software engineer at Microsoft, having rejoined in 2015 after a momentary lapse of reason. Hey, who wrote this bio anyway? <laughs> well, this is what happens when you have a guy who's been on a bunch of times, doesn't send us an update bio. I get oh, to okay. write it. <laughs> well, Dan leads the pros team in Azure Information Management and Machine Learning. He was once involved in Entity Framework, but we've forgiven him for that. <laughs> You're having a good time, aren't you? I am. Gustavo Suarez is a researcher on the pros team, a blended research and engineering team at Microsoft, and his research focus is improving developer productivity through program synthesis. Recently, he's been working with the IntelliCode team on the IntelliCode refactorings feature in Visual Studio. Before joining the firm, Gustavo was an assistant professor at Federal University of Campina Grande in Brazil. He lives in Seattle, and in his free time, he enjoys climbing, surfing, and snowboarding with his wife. Welcome, guys. Hey, it's good to see you guys. Or, well, not see, but talk with you guys. It's good to see your waveform. Yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I should start real quick by, by uh, making a slight correction. I don't actually okay. need the pros team. I'm the one crazy engineer on this team full of researchers. Uh, oh. And uh, so we have a whole bunch of researchers coming out of originally what uh, used to be an MSR, 
but now in the actual product groups, and I'm the guy who gets to help them figure out how to actually ship stuff. So tell us about this PROS team, and it's an acronym, right? P-R-O-S-E? PROS stands for uh, Program Synthesis Using Examples. And um, I don't know if you've ever played with uh, this feature in Excel called Flash Fill, where uh, if you have, uh, you know, a table of data, say it's a bunch of uh, first names, last names, and, and so on, and you want to add a column that is some combination of the data uh, from the other columns, you can just type in an example of what you want, and Excel will automatically figure out how to combine the other data to produce that that same kind of value and, and fill it down. So, you know, if you wanted first initial last name, then it'll automatically fill that down. That is brilliant. That, we need more stuff like that. The manager of our team, Sumit Gowani, was the one who originally worked with the Excel team to pr- produce this feature that, that's based on program synthesis. And then uh, eventually we decided to form a team inside the product groups and use that same kind of technology throughout the company in a bunch of different products from SQL Server Management Studio to Azure Data Studio to Power BI. Uh, and then recently, uh, bringing that into Visual Studio and the new work that Gustavo and some other folks on the team have been doing has been so exciting that we decided to move the entire team to developer division. Wow. So, we had a little delay in recording this show because we were in the process of figuring that out. And, and when we finally landed the, the deal to move to developer division, I said, hey, let's wait. Let's record the show. We can tell you guys about a lot of the interesting things that, that are coming up because of that. So we, talked, you- we talked about yeah. IntelliCode a while ago, and uh, this is sort of this AI-assisted uh, super overseer kind of thing that uh, really helps you with sort of like IntelliSense with a real brain. And uh, just, is it built into studio now or is it something that you have to download and plug in or what's the story with IntelliCode? So uh, the basic IntelliCode functionality is built into studio. Now there are new, it's a, well, it's an extension that gets installed by default. Okay. Uh, I believe is how that works. And uh, there are new versions coming out with more and more features. And, and that's kind of what uh, we've been working on. I'll, I'll let Gustavo tell you a little bit about uh, the re- specific feature that the pros team has been doing. Yeah, but that's right. I think since uh, the Visual Studio 2019, uh, IntelliCode uh, is on by default. Uh, and with this feature that you mentioned, that is the AI assisted IntelliSense, which will bring the, the most likely, uh, uh, completion for your code. Um, but we, IntelliCode also has this, uh, kind of, uh, preview features, uh, that we, these ones are off by default and then you can enable it. And one of the features that we are introducing is this IntelliCode refactorings. Uh, which allows uh, you to automate kind of repetitive tasks that you do when you're coding. Like you have uh, an example as you have a lot of duplicated code and you want to create a function that will extract uh, this code and replace the duplicated code by just invoking the function. Uh, and it's a lot of manual steps to create this, uh, extract this method and then replace every location with a call to this new method. Yeah, so we end up uh, learning uh, 
we, we watch the, the interaction of the developer while they are coding and we learn this repetitive pattern that the developer is performing of have, going to each one of this location, remove the duplicated code, add the function to the new code, to the new method, uh, the function call, and we learn this, this refactoring by example. And we generate, after learning this uh, refactoring, we use it to generate suggestions of locations where the developer should apply the same change. Sounds very code rushy. Are you familiar with that product? It's a little different than Code Rush or or similar kinds of things that you might get out of ReSharper um, in the sense that instead of doing a sort of a static analysis of the code and finding a particular pattern in the code where it's almost like a, a search and replace, um, this actually looks at the semantic changes that you're making to the tree, the AST, of the code and finds patterns of changes. So uh, I might have one place where this code is used with one set of variables and another place where a similar pattern of code but completely different variable names are used. But because we're looking at the shape of the changes made to the tree, we can detect the commonality between those two very different um, things and find a whole other place with completely different third set of variables um, that you might apply that same kind of a change to. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I think the main difference between the existing uh, code analysis tools is, is that they are based on a set of existing uh, templates, refactorings for specific situations. And these are very common. Uh, a lot of people use them. And But there are also, on the other hand, specific changes that are only important for me as a developer. I'm changing my code in this particular way now, which involve all these repetitive edits, and there is no existing tool that automates this for me. Can a tool learn this uh, repetitive changes that I'm making here and generate suggestions based on my own changes? Yeah, Im- imagine if Code Rush had refactorings that were built on the fly just for you by watching what you do. Yeah, yep, I got that. That's pretty incredible. This just seemed like something that isn't going to do a whole lot at first, but the as it watches you, would get better and better at, at making your coding easier. Uh, to some extent, that's true, but it's also more about the particular uh, session that you're in today. You know, it may be that I'm working on my code base and there's some underlying library that I use. And I decide to upgrade that to a new version and they had some breaking change. And now I have to go through my entire code base all this morning and make the same kind of edits for every place where we use that library. Mm -hmm. Um, And maybe I'll never have to do this again. It's not that it's going to learn from a long period of time. It's just notice, oh, you made this edit in this file. And then you went down to the bottom half of the file and you made the same kind of edit. And then uh, there's a third location in that file and you didn't even notice it. And the system will detect that detect that you did the same kind of change, detect another place where it could happen and put a little squiggly under it or a little light bulb next to it. And you, you just have could have Clippy up. pop up and say, hey, it looks like you're doing a refactoring. Can I <laughs> propagate this for you? Is that a business or a personal refactoring? <laughs> <laughs> it sort of feels like uh, Clippy has become subversive. You know, it's yeah, right. all over the company, but he just doesn't reveal that it's him. It's not That's out yet. Right. If, yeah, if you click pop- on the squiggly line, the little paperclip pops up and waves at you, and then it goes away again. 
Yeah, that's that's the debugging aid that we have, but the rest of right. you don't get to see the little we don't get to see animation. It. But I, I also see some simple things in the documentation, like for example, there's a, a code on a line that has a string constant. You know, you basically say what this string is, and it's computed or whatever. And then you do a console write line, hit the parentheses, and this, and then the variable just pops right up in the list. So you press tab, and there it is. Yeah, the um, the existing IntelliCode set of functionality that's a little different from this repeated edits definitely is about that. The, the sort of yeah. how do I complete the line that I'm typing? And instead of just showing you the static list of all possibilities, it tries to sort of understand more about your specific code base or the things that you do to help prioritize that. Um, right. And uh, the repeated edits kind of or refactorings feature that Gustavo has been working on is about taking that to the next level and saying, hey, instead of just um, just helping you finish one line, let's look at the overall set of changes that you want to make. And let's see if we can uh, uh, extend those to uh, throughout the rest of your file or other kinds of patterns or things. And yeah, this is, I'm, I'm in awe. Like the possibilities here are stunning in terms of just speeding up repetitive practices. Well, and, and we're looking at ways that we can sort of extend these same kind of core ideas to more places, more kinds of refactorings, more languages. So, so the first round started out with uh, C Sharp in Visual Studio, um, and we're, we're pushing ahead to getting that uh, ready where it's actually at GA. Uh, but now we're looking at, hey, are there more ways that we can uh, provide this kind of functionality and in more places? Like, what if you wanted to do Python in VS Code? And you should be able to have those same kind of experiences there. Or what if you're working in C++ uh, or TypeScript? Uh, all of those uh, kinds of environments and, and different languages benefit from this same core idea. That's interesting because I was thinking this would be this is part of what's got to make this work is you have Roslyn at your disposal. So while it's considering you know, modifications of the code, can also quickly validate it against the compiler to go, am I actually producing valid code? Yes, actually, this is a funny uh, story about this too. Because uh, the first, when we just released the feature, uh, we uh, we were actually not, uh, although we had Roslyn, we were not actually validating whether the code compiles or not. Because on our hmm. internal tests, the two had a high uh, precision on the suggestions that produced. But we were testing internally with as many repetitive edit scenarios that we could find inside uh, Microsoft in, with our own examples. But when we put the tool in the wild for real users, then they end up finding a lot of uh, suggestions that were actually incorrect. Uh, that Interesting. We, that would and this is it's kind of uh, uh, yeah, users don't expect. Uh, from Visual Studio to show suggestions that will not compile. And this was an immediate step that we take further was, okay, we have generate suggestions. It's nice that we can learn these suggestions automatically just from data. But after that, let's check with the compiler if these suggestions will not break your code. 
So now I bring that up as soon as you start talking about Python and, and working in VS Code and so forth. It's like, okay, well, you're still going to need to check the code, but that's going to be a different mechanism. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, we're still investigating what is the best way to, to do uh, the check in Python, but there is all, some sort of starting tools that we can use at least to check some of the common mistakes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you could imagine building this tool specifically for uh, Roslyn where the trees that we're looking at manipulating are the Roslyn actual ASTs. But we found for a variety of reasons, not, not the least of which being going to different languages, that it was better to take a tree that's produced by whatever tool set you have, Roslyn in the case of, of .NET languages, but other uh, systems uh, for other languages, and, and translate that into our own tree shape. Um, and then as far as the first level of analysis that we do goes, we're just literally looking at you started with this tree, you ended up with this other tree, and we know how to transform between the two. Um, and we don't even really understand the semantics of the language underneath. We're just looking at these uh, tree transformations. And then we do the next level of, okay, specifically for this environment, and we do extra validation to make sure that the final tree that you're ending up with is is one you might want. Right. I so I'm wondering do developers on other platforms or with other languages or you know their IDEs other than Visual Studio Visual Studio Code are they used to or not used to this kind of you know statement completion and IntelliSense and IntelliCode like do you find that you know somebody who comes from a of a kind of just a you know basic text editor for their code and then they they see this stuff that it is they're just blown away by it. i mean are you seeing that or, or am i just naive in thinking that you know everybody else other than c-sharp developers are using notepad so i think um it has always been the case that visual studio has and and vs code by extension has sort of led the way in some of these kinds of uh, productivity improvements for developers and the basic, uh, you know, sort of code completion things that are in, have been in IntelliSense for us mm-hmm. in Visual Studio forever have now made their way to a lot of other environments, but um, but it came a little more slowly, and now we're just seeing the next round of innovation that isn't yet in those other environments. Um, yeah. So you know, if you if you fire up Sublime. And uh, and you're coding in uh, uh, Python or Ruby or some some environment. You might have some level of tooling that will help you with completion, but the experience is typically much less likely to be accurate, less likely to be super productive than the kinds of things that uh, we typically see with .NET developers in the studio. Yeah, um, and I suspect over time that will continue to trickle its way down. Yeah, I think it also uh, this talk brings another challenge, where, which is like uh, whether the user actually know that the tool exists or not, right? If you come from another IDE, or if we 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 produce the same feature for Visual Studio Code or for other language, um, we need to show to the user that the tool exists. Like there is this discoverability problem, and even in Visual Studio, there are so many features inside of Visual Studio that it's hard to to say that, oh, now I have to use this feature. I remember that this feature exists. So this is what one of the main uh, challenges that we try to deal here, like with this feature. Uh, we 
as we mentioned before, we work on this program synthesis where the user will provide input-output examples of what they want to, to automate. Uh, but in this case here, we didn't want the user to have to say, hey, I want to apply this refactoring. Uh, please automate the refactoring for me. Uh, because this kind of would break the workflow of the developers. And in many cases, the developer would not even remember that he has the feature. So instead of this, we are just basically watching what the developer is doing. And in the uh, all this uh, learning we are doing on the client code, on the client side. So we are just watching mm. all the changes that you're making. And we are inferring these patterns while we watch. You don't, the user doesn't need to change their behavior to actually use the tool. Well, and I think that's the important part. I don't think anybody's thinking in terms of, I need a tool to help me. I think they're working on the problem and the idea that the tool would say, hey, I see what you're doing. Can I help you? And, you know, I said Clippy and humor, but, you know, we didn't ask for Clippy. He just popped up, hopefully, at opportune moments. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, 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 that's a good point. And it's, it's, there is a challenge of finding this right moment because developers don't want to be... Uh, uh, bothered all the time. Interrupted. Yeah. The art of interrupting a developer in a constructive way, which is hard because the correct number of interruptions for developer is none. <laughs> yeah. But if it could actually save them time and move them more quickly down the path they're on, that's a really tough uh, thread to needle or needle to thread. Some of those. <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah. We first, actually, when we learned the suggestions and we start showing suggestions for the developers in the first uh, release of the feature in September last year, we would hi uh, do this uh, green squiggly lines uh, to show that there is a suggestion at that point. And it seems that these developers didn't like this. Uh, right. There's too much uh, noise in my file. I don't want to be seeing this. Mm. On the other option, Visual Studio also has this uh, different uh, a view that is now it's only showing these three dots in the corner of the line to show that there is a suggestion there. The problem is that many times the developer don't see that suggestion. Right. Uh, it's too subtle. Right. It's too subtle. Yeah. Uh, so uh, IntelliSense has a good model, right? Because you can you just press the tab and it shows immediately how to autocomplete. Uh, so we are still trying to find the best way to to. Uh, show the suggestion to the developers. One of the things that has been uh, really great for us since we have entered developer division is to get plugged into the really great processes that they have to do user research, to gather data, to figure out how to uh, get this value uh, and tune these kinds of experiences. And so uh, I'm really excited as we partner with them to kind of go through these iterations, to brainstorm about new ways. And, and I think uh, the result that we're uh, converging on is, is going to be a really good balance. Awesome. Danny and Gustavo, let me interrupt for one moment for this very important message. Hey, Carl and Richard here. We'd like to tell you all about the upcoming conferences NDC is hosting all around the world. NDC DevOps Oslo will be March 11 to 13. Go to ndcdevops.com to register. NDC Copenhagen is April 1st through 3rd. Go to ndccopenhagen.com to register. NDC Porto will be April 21st through the 24th. So go to ndcporto.com to register. And check out the full lineup of conferences at ndcconferences.com. 
And we're back. It's .NET Rocks. I'm Richard Campbell. That's Carl Franklin. Yeah. And we've got Daniel Simmons and Gustavo Sarez talking to us about pros, the program synthesis for using examples, uh, which ties – IntelliCode is more than that, right? This is just one feature of IntelliCode? That's right. Okay. Yeah. So, IntelliCode is a sort of general umbrella for all these smart things that that uh, you can do in studio. And, uh, and pros is now a new aspect of this. Yeah, well, and one of the things that I also wanted to spend a little time sharing with you is not just about this feature in IntelliCode, which I think is a great way to get uh, some of the pros capabilities in the hands of, of developers, but other things that we're doing in developer division with, with pros. So um, I don't know if you're familiar at all with Jupyter Notebooks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I am. I'm impressed by them. Very cool. <laughs> so, uh, so one of the things that we realized a while back was that a lot of the places we had applied pros to Microsoft products in the past have been kind of like this feature in IntelliCode where it's using the synthesis technology under the covers, but the user doesn't really know that that's what's going on. We happen to, to uh, you know, gather some or, or generate some code for the user and they just see an end feature. But at the same time, as developers, we spend all day, every day, writing lots of code. And yes. some amount of that code we write is super important and in the middle of the key processes for what we're trying to get done. And then there's a lot of code that we write that is pretty fiddly. And the actual value I'm adding as a developer may be relatively small, but I got to get it right. And I got to get it done. And um, in particular, if you start dealing with data kinds of scenarios, maybe you need to import some data from a a file on disk that's, uh, it started out with the idea of a CSV file, but it's really not comma separated. It's separated with semicolons and there's a bunch of crap at the beginning. And, you know, there's various things that are weird about it. Um, and I need to now write some code or use some library to import this data into, into my system to work on. Um, it may be that I can call some library to import that CSV, but I might have to specify 20 or 30 parameters with a whole bunch of very hard to determine values to get the data to come in correctly. Mm-hmm. And um, this is the kind of thing that Prose is really good at. So we can take a look at that file for you and actually synthesize the code that you would need to write to accomplish that, and then just paste that into your system on your behalf. And uh, Jupyter Notebooks is a great way to sort of blend, I'm writing some code, but I'm also interactively running some code on the fly, uh, and I might even have some UI to help me uh, specify those kinds of things. So we're working with uh, a variety of teams around the company that are doing Jupyter Notebooks, uh, to add in some pros technology where you can automatically just point at the file and, and out comes the code you want. I also really like the metaphor of the notebooks because I realize my development projects clearly break into different categories. One's where it's like I have a constrained environment for a client that has these particular set of rules. Like I'm at the point now where that lives in a VM on its own because I'm that concerned about quote unquote contaminating it. And those more, I'm not going to say hobby projects, but the things that you're fiddling with or experimenting with. And I like the notebook metaphor where it's, it is sort of a record of your experimentation. Yeah, that's right. That happens to also be able to run the code. 
Mm-hmm. Well, and, and I think um, depending upon the nature of the project that you're doing, like you say, it, it might be something that I'm fiddling with, or it may just be it's a project where I need to accomplish this task. It may be a complicated task, but I need to accomplish it once for this set of data. And then I may do a sort of related task for some other set of data, but it's not mm-hmm. like a, a big system that I'm going to build and deploy and, and hundreds of users are going to do. Um, and in that kind of an environment, you know, having the ability to write some code and then run it and, and look at it and then write some more code and interact with it uh, is is a much better kind of a metaphor. Jupyter struck me as sort of a gooified command line environment that you, is not, you know, you're sort of skipping away from the compile step and just noodling with code and seeing results as you go. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's true. And it, it, it blends that, the, the gooified is a really good uh, piece to it because it, it blends not only running my code um, and seeing results, but also you can even have little bits of tooling that can appear in line in your notebook. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the kind of thing where uh, blending some amount of tooling, some way that the user can interact with the, the concepts that may not just be text and code, um, and uh, and then also having some code with it together can be a much more productive environment for certain kinds of tasks. And so um, we've taken some concepts like what we had in Flashville, where you might uh, bring in a table of data and d- display it in line in your notebook and then hit a button and get a new empty column and give an example. And suddenly you've, uh, uh, the system can learn the function to derive that column for you, just like Flashville in Excel. Um, and then even better, we can output the code that generated that for you so that if you wanted to then copy and paste it into a bigger project that you can deploy something hmm. more often you have that option. Right. That's pretty cool. So yeah, so so the this uh you know working with with researchers is is very interesting because they come up with lots of crazy ideas that uh I never would would imagine. And uh and this kind of a system where we can take the user just gives us some some pointer, whether it's watching what they're doing, whether it's specific examples, whether it's a, a file that has data in it, all of these different kinds of things. And, uh, and then we can produce a fragment of code that's the same code that you might have written by hand, but we just got it done for you instantly uh, and, and more accurately. Is there any way that the user can make it the experience better by doing any kind of deliberate training? Or is it best just to let it go and do its own thing? That's actually a very good point. So, so uh, one of the things that we found is we've done a lot of these experiments where, uh, particularly when we were working with data scientists who wanted to, um, you know, clean up a set of data and they need to make a set of transformations to data to get to the results that they want. And we started off with this, uh, let's give you, you know, you go to the, this table of data and they give an example on the first row uh, of what we want, and then we learn and fill in the rest of the column. And then they go, oh, yeah, it's all great, except down here on row 10, you got it wrong. Um, hmm. And so now what do you do? Well, we allow you to go to row 10 and just override with the correct answer for that, and then we'll relearn given the set of examples you've shown us so far and get a different kind of function. Um, 
then we went even the next level beyond that. And we said, hey, once we're synthesizing programs, the way we actually do this is that we synthesize all programs that could match the set of examples you've given us in, in a constrained language. And then we rank them to pick the one that we think is the best choice. But in the course of doing that, we synthesize some other possibilities that we don't think are the first choice, but they're out there. We can compare those to the rest of the data and find other rows where things are different. And, and then we might say, hey, down in row 30,000, we noticed that it might be the answer that we think is the first choice. But there's this other choice. Maybe you should look at that row and tell us. Right. And so the... Yeah, I like that idea of a certainty filter. It's like, yeah, for 99% of these, I'm pretty certain I got this right. Here's the 1%. Exactly. So mm. so we can kind of do this sort of uh, interactive loop with the user to converge on what is the exact uh, set of examples that lead to the program that they really wanted. Uh, and, and actually even uh, you could imagine systems where we build tests automatically so that if tomorrow you run this same set of uh, cleaning operations through a new set of data, uh, we can say, hey, look, some of the data is now outside of what we had seen before. Maybe you need to give us some more examples so that we can uh, make the system even better over time. Nice. Yeah. You know, uh, thinking about data management, prepping data for, uh, for analysis, that kind of thing, all of that cleaning, this stuff is killer. Because there's so many of those repetitive searching for the one or 0.1% exceptions, like save me time on that. Yeah, it, it's, it's an interesting challenge because uh, we found when we, on the one hand, when we went and talked to data scientists, they would say that they spend 80 to 90% of their time just cleaning up the data so they can actually do the analysis. And, and then on the other hand, um, uh, when you start automating the system too much, then they say, ah, but you know what? I'm the data guy. I don't really trust your magic stuff. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and so how do we work this process together to sort of blend helping them automating parts of the system, but also giving them visibility into the code that we are actually generating and, and control over the system? The checking tools is the part, right? That that audit capability that, to say, okay, now show me, rank all all of the you've parsed a hundred thousand rows for me. Now give me your your one percent that you're the least confident on. Yeah, I think that that was a key part, and I think the other key part for us was going from magically making the changes uh, that the user could do, even with that audit, to generating code for them that they can then review if they want. Right, um, and if if they approve that code, uh, uh, or maybe a, the code that we generated was ninety five percent correct, but they know by looking at it that there's one case they missed, and the easiest thing is just edit the code and make a little change. Yeah, do a customization. You know, this reminds mm -hmm. me of convincing DBAs to use automation for data mod uh, data configuration changes, which you know the used to be the DBA's job was to craft these magnificent scripts and the fact that you could basically say hey here's the state of my database right now this is the state it needs to be in and it would spit the script out and they didn't trust them so the fact that we didn't make the changes rather but just gave them the script so they could read through it and then occasionally find that rare exception where they could add their own little piece of code then they felt like it was making them more effective not that it was replacing them right well and and i think that's both a matter of generating the code 
uh, and sharing it with them, but also doing it in small chunks so mm-hmm. that you can afford to read it and making sure that the code that you generate is something that someone might actually want to read. I would think code better than you could write in yourself. Cleaner, you know, exceptionally. That's really the goal. And uh, and we've actually put a lot of uh, time and research into how to do that kind of thing, how to mine idioms so that when we generate the code, it's it's actually idiomatic code. It's not, uh, you know, machine language that happens to be Python executable or something. Right. Yeah. Yeah, if you be, you know, I think I think back to stuff like interdev and just like ha- such horrible code. So the the to, that it's exceptionally clear code, I think, is remarkably important. Stuff you'd be proud to show. Yes. Yeah. And you know that's always uh, an ongoing effort. It's not something that we will uh, always nail one hundred percent. One of the things that I had to get used to when I joined this team is this whole idea that the next level of innovations and improvements we can make <clears throat> requires us to be 90% sure and find ways to work through the with the user to get the last percentage instead of only working on problems where we can 100% nail it. Yeah. Yeah, I think you want to press against the edges of this thing too, right? Like what what's possible? Uh you know, I think most people, and I certainly feel this way, all of the data examples, you know, the flash fill t- style stuff, we totally get that. But modifying my code freaks me out. Like, that seems like, because if this goes wrong, <coughs> you've really made a mess. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And it, it's actually, that's one, as Daniel mentioned, that's what's, what why it's important to be transparent and why we're trying to go from... Uh, uh, like a model that you cannot understand, a black box, like what, what's common on a machine learning model, uh, to a code, a synthesized code that you can review the code. But even when you show the code that uh, sometimes you have these other challenges, can you even read this code? Uh, how can you make a code that is readable? Or how can you make a mm-hmm. code that is readable and I'm familiar with? So there is all this challenge that we are doing step by step. Even on this refactoring domain, um, one thing is, uh, oh, you automated these changes in this file. Oh, that's great. These are correct or are incorrect. I can easily check. But what if I applied, ask you to apply all this refactoring in my entire code base? I, I don't mm. want to have to reveal a thousand of files, each one, uh, to say whether this refactor is correct or incorrect. So can you actually show me the refactoring script that you create? And can I understand it so that I'm confident that that it will work if I apply it everywhere? So these are, yeah, challenges that we're going uh, step by step. Each one of them will probably end up in a research paper with a bunch of uh, experiments and uh, proposed solution. Uh, but yeah, in many cases, we don't know the solution yet. And in addition, you mentioned research paper, uh, Gustavo, because it, I know you guys are now in dev div, but you still research types. You want to write papers and you are creating new science here. Yeah, actually, that's true. Like even this uh, IntelliCode refactoring project, it was a research paper. Uh, it was uh, a research intern that we had for six months that worked with us. Uh, and we worked together with the IntelliCode team uh, trying to find the boundaries, uh, the new technology to make it possible because 
existing technology would not make this possible. Like this is the right. first, this is the first time that you are learning all these changes that you're coding on your computer locally without needing to send to use a lot of data uh, in a pretty quick way. So we, we had to do a lot of uh, experiments and try different solutions to find a, a good solution for that. And we have hmm. to balance between this. Uh, we need to f- find a solution that it's uh, a good solution, but it's also a feasible solution in a short term that we will be able to ship. Uh, and then it brings also many different challenges. For instance, uh, one of the first challenge that we had it, like we had, we published the paper, we had good results, uh, the, 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 the system is fast enough. But when we put it in, in practice, uh, it was consuming a lot of memory. Because mm. if you're, if you're training with your own data, you're basically taking a snapshot every time that you change the file and creating an AST in memory and using this to train. And you're keeping this history. And then at some point, we were consuming like one gigabyte of memory <laughs> because of wow. that. Okay. Uh, and it was like, oh, my. When, when the IntelliCo team saw this, they were like, oh, my God, that's absurd. Like, we cannot, <laughs> we cannot have a tool like this. Uh, <laughs> And just a reminder, Visual Studio is still 32-bit for a reason, because yeah. four gigs ought to be enough for anybody. Yeah, that, that's true. And like, there's <laughs> like, if you think about it, it's just a small feature inside of Visual Studio, and like, how how many other features are there? Right? Like, it's hard. Yeah. Like, they cannot afford to let me use one gigabyte of memory to learn. No. Uh, so right now we are in, I think, 27 megabytes. So. There was a lot of engineering work behind with help of Danny and the other engineers in the team and also different research ideas to reduce from this uh, uh, huge amount of memory needed for learning to now it's around 25, 27 megabytes. Uh, So Mm -hmm. there is this uh, challenges and balancing. It's very interesting because uh, we are not just so focused on research. We are actually also trying to to help with real problems. We're collecting feedback from users uh, and working with engineers in, in the team and also in the partner teams like in the IntelliCode so that we can, at the end, have not just a prototype and a research paper, but also like release the tool. This is really what got me excited about joining the pros team when I came back to Microsoft several years ago, was I had actively worked uh, on projects whether that was in any framework or way back in Outlook back in the day, where we had partnerships with MSR and there would be great ideas coming from the researchers. But then when it actually hit the product team, we would take a look at the code and say, yeah, great idea. We'll rewrite that thing from scratch. And that's no good for anybody. No. And uh, so the mission of the pros team from the beginning has been, let's be blended research and engineering. Let's take the researchers bring them closer to the real world problems and teach them how to write code the the way that we want to ship it from the beginning. And uh, not only does that make things more efficient, but it also means that the researchers encounter problems that they never would have even known existed before and can apply that same creativity to whole new areas. Mm. And that's been the exciting thing about being on the team. Yeah, and it, it's interesting because I think it would also make them better researchers too to be more connected with 
the the code the way that it goes into production. But it does is going to take a certain amount of time, but it also stops those that rewrite effect from happening. Absolutely. Uh, you know, it, it's kind of in my head, it's kind of like the eye opening that happens when you start doing test driven development. There can be this this initial uh, angst that oh, is it going to take us longer to write all these tests when we already have to write the code? And then you begin to realize, no, actually, it's probably faster. And it's the same right. same kind of thing. If we get the researchers closer to the real world problems, it does increase the scope of what they're doing, but the pace of the research is still really great. And the value that you generate is just orders of magnitude greater. Yeah. Power, powerful stuff, guys. This is really yeah. interesting. And, it, and again, it's like, I think everybody's okay with the data stuff. The code stuff is just a bit more challenging, but as we see success, it's just going to be an advantage for you writing code with a tool like this available to you. Well, and, and it's all about the, a tool that augments what you do. It's not a, a tool that replaces you or a tool that uh, that you have to then fight with and, and worry about. Instead, it's just, uh, you know, more more power as you are typing, fewer strokes that you have to hit mm. with your fingers. Yeah, as Danny mentioned, uh, we are just trying to uh, automate these repetitive, boring steps that uh, a programmer needs to do. Sometimes it's like, oh, I forgot how to do this. I, I, I need to go to Stack Overflow, take a look again at the pattern of the code, bring it back and code it. So it's just, or I have to apply these repetitive steps to change this uh, API from uh, this old version to this new version. So all these yeah. small, repetitive, boring tasks that the developer do, some, has to do sometimes, we want to automate this so that we can focus. You, the developer, can focus on the like main, the most interesting part of the problem. Yeah, the things that'll make the most difference. And plus, the other side of that repetitive sort of task is it's very easy to make a mistake, right? Like you, you, you look at a refactoring that's going to be implemented in a lot of different places, and if you're hand coding a whole bunch of that, the chances you get every one of them perfect, like you're just introducing new classes of, of error. Yeah, that, that's actually, uh, yeah, there was a curious scenario that uh, I received a report of a bug in the IntelliCode refactorings um, that uh, it was showing that, oh, the refactoring learned, learned this incorrect pattern. And when I started looking at the logs, uh, this was internally inside of Microsoft. I was looking what happened with the tool. Uh, the, de the developer that was applying this repetitive change through the code, it was actually changing from a, uh, it's equal to it's null at some point of the code. Uh, and it, it, at some point, the developer applied an incorrect change to some location hmm. manually. So the tool at, until that point, it was, generating the right suggestions in other locations, but then the developer applied the correct change manually, and we end up learning this incorrect pattern uh, because of the incorrect uh, change that the developer did. It kind of- Ah, you're gonna amplify my mistakes yeah, as well exactly, as- Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> you learn from my mistakes, I'm generating correct <laughs> suggestions. So it's kind of tricky and like this brings new research challenges and engineering to detect this uh, cases, but it can also bring this opportunity to, to say to the, to say to raise this uh, hand and say, "Hey, you may have we noticed that you changed your pattern here. You may want to look again, even if you apply it manually. We may want to try to help the developer." 
catching this case. Yeah, that's really interesting to just say, hey, I'm recognizing a pattern here, but you didn't follow it in this point. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah. So there is many other ideas that we want to, to do on top of this. Like we also want to bring uh, patterns that I'm doing for other uh, export this to other people in my team so that we can have to, this common knowledge now. Uh, a lot of times mm -hmm. I have, uh, uh, I see in PRs where I submit a pull request and then some uh, coworker in my team will say, oh, you should do actually, uh, this, there is a better way of doing this. And it would be nice if we can start learning from all these people, this different type of uh, knowledge and, uh, and have this, uh, for everyone. Right? I wonder if you get to a place where you could start recognizing coding patterns, like it, it, you know, it looks like you're using a singular here or, you know, that kind of, of concept, the, the various coding patterns that are out there and, and help people just sort of identify when they're going down that path. So they, they learn from the past. Yeah, that, that's a good point. Uh, yeah, I, I think it seems like, um, not only are we looking at ways to learn these within teams, but we're also looking at ways to leverage some of the open source code, uh, both in Stack Overflow and in and GitHub, uh, as uh, sources for these kinds of patterns. And and this is other kinds of functionality that that the IntelliCode team is looking at uh, in future releases, not just from the pros team, where uh, they can mine common subtrees uh, across large amounts of code and then use that to suggest fragments of code uh, so that you know not only do you get completion of a line if I'm if I'm trying to determine the parameters for a particular function but you might get a whole snippet of code that accomplishes a, a larger task it just occurred to me you could do reverse. Uh, stack overflow guy starts writing code. He's like, Hey, there's a stack overflow on this. Yes. Yeah. That, uh, you know, as opposed yeah. to, I look up a stack overflow, cut and paste it in. It's like, Oh no, I'll guide you right to the thing that you you're starting to write. Hey, now Richard, yeah. you're taking away what makes us a programmer. <laughs> Googling <laughs> I'm just, stack I'm just, overflow. I'm getting Google I mean, out of the loop. I'm letting the tool just lead us to the right place. Right. Exactly. It's pretty soon. They're going to come for my job, man. They're going to say, no, this AI is good enough without you. <laughs> but but you imagine starting to see a factory pattern emerging and then you you know it's like hey this looks like a factory pattern have you you know these are the mistakes that folks make in factory patterns like maybe i can help you go down the right path that this is a you know well mapped to the factory pattern right right yeah i think this is a great uh, uh suggestion and it actually it brings this idea of like yeah there are different things to learn here we are learning edit patterns, patterns of refactorings, but we can also learn edit uh, patterns of code, but also uh, we can have also different ways to specify what we want, right? Uh, we, As you mentioned, we can see that the user is writing that pattern and we can suggest uh, some, some uh, ways to improve the patterns, but we can also let the user, instead of go to Stack Overflow, we can as, uh, let the user write a query using natural language, saying what they want to do. And we can take that uh, natural language uh, query and generate a code for that. So, Well, and perhaps provide them with a template or snippets or all kinds of things that might actually help them speed their way down that process. Yeah, 
Exactly. Perfect. So there is all these uh, challenges in this idea of program synthesis, how we can synthesize some piece of code uh, from some sort of specification, right? The user can give examples of what they want to do. The user can write a natural language query to say what they want to do, or it can be just the context, the change that the user is making. And so uh, there is all this challenge that we are trying to see how to put together everything. And it, bring, and it brings different, like, uh, technical, uh, uh, um, it brings uh, different uh, technologies behind. We can use uh, just pure machine learning techniques that we will learn from thousands and thousands or millions of examples, uh, these patterns. Uh, or you can use program synthesis, as we are using in the pros team, that allows you to learn from very few examples. For instance, in Flash Fill, you can have just one example of what you want to do, and the, the, the system will figure out what's the program. In uh, IntelliCode Refactoring, you can give just as few as two examples of the refactoring, and it will learn what's the refactoring. And we are trying to go even further in combining these two ideas of program synthesis and machine learning to use uh, both technologies to, to help. Uh, well, awesome. these new tools. Well, I was about to ask you what's next, but that that's a that's a, a challenging uh, future you're laying out here. Yeah, th- I think and, this uh, is this is pretty much uh, the challenge is how can we allow uh, the user specify what they want to do in all these different ways, uh, right. and how can we produce this code that, as you guys mentioned, it needs to be readable. Uh, I want to be confident that this code is correct. And, yeah. and there are many different technologies uh, behind to enable this. You can use pure machine learning, you can use program synthesis, you can try to combine both uh, of them. Wow, great. Awesome. Guys, thank you very much. This has been fantastic, and, and uh, I know our listeners really appreciate it, what you're doing. Thanks for having us. Thank you. You bet. All right, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a